The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. So tonight we are starting in introducing a major story, a major issue in the teaching of yoga. We start talking a little bit about what we called a few days ago the morals and ethics in yoga, the famous yama and niyama. I was almost scaring you a few days ago, telling you about some experiments leading to hypnotic powers and things like this, and it seemed like a lot of things suddenly become possible and it's a bit scary even that somebody can push it to that limit. And I've also told you that actually, fortunately, yoga is not just like modern science, just knowledge, and it can be used destructively and so on. You can see it very well in the trip of the modern mankind, which is inventing all kind of things just for all kind of silly purposes, very often for evil, wicked, destructive purposes. And basically it's like we are given a creativity, but actually we use it against ourselves, against the others and so on. So basically the yogis were aware of the fact that yoga is a trip that takes you in some deep recesses of your soul, of the universe, of the mind, and therefore you should be warned about some of the things that happen or that may happen during this yoga adventure. Because of this, funny enough, as I told you a few days ago, in the ten, in the eight levels of the yoga of Patanjali, the first two are non-technical and they are called yama and niyama and they seem to refer to morals and ethics. And I remember I told you at that time, and I would like to just mention it passingly now, that yama and niyama do not man, mean morals and ethics in the Western meaning of these English words. Uh, many people, when they hear about it, they say, oh boy, you can't get rid of it even here. Somebody is going to moralize us about what is bad and what is good and all this. Actually, take it more like a course in physics or in self-protection, if you want. That means if I'm teaching you some things about electricity and I'm teaching you don't touch the live wire because it's going to shock you and kill you, actually I'm not threatening you and I'm not moralizing you. And I'm not telling you that it is ugly to touch the live wire and God has said thou shall not touch the live wire. Uh, basically there is nothing, it has nothing to do with this. The thing is that if you touch the live wire you might as well die. It's as simple as that. Basically, I'm informing you about some law of nature that you might be ignorant of. The yama and niyama are precisely this. The yogis might say, be careful, because you might not realize, but if you do violence, this and this will happen to you. It's not because God has said, and neither because Professor Immanuel Kant has decreed that it is ugly to do violence or I don't know what. Basically, the yogis say, if after someone told you that the live wire is dangerous and you still want to try it, be welcome. You are a fool, nevertheless, but be welcome to do so, to touch the live wire, just to check what another one checked before you, actually. So, in the same way, yama and niyama was not considered by the yogis to be moralizing. It refers to the behavior, but it is more like informing one what is harmonious, what is producing good karmic results, what is disturbing our health, what is increasing our meditation, what is, it sounds like sometimes limited, oh, so it means 
you can't really do that well we can't do anything about this you can't fly either without a propeller or anything so basically if you step out of the roof of this house you'll fall and perhaps break your leg and this is no nobody's fault nature is just that way so in the same way there's nobody to blame it's just a fake understanding of freedom and basically because of this the yogis say you should be informed many people are still at doubt why should yoga contain I mean it sounds nice that yoga is a science with conscience and it sounds kind of reassuring to know that if somebody will train five years and get hypnotic powers that person will not start going around hypnotizing the others and stealing their money or abusing them sexually while hypnotized or God knows what so basically it sounds reassuring but still many people would ask why did the yogis have to deal with it I mean yoga is so beautiful for the fact that it is so technical it tells you everything about energies the body the reactions the psychological levels and so on it's very straight it's like a science why did they need to involve themselves with behavior to make the long story short I'll tell you that there are usually three answers given with respect to this why the yogis of thousands of years ago they considered that it was good to keep this chapter in yoga, to speak about it, to introduce it, especially at the beginner stages of yoga. The first reason given to it is self-protection. As you know, the yogis claim that there exists a force in the universe and they don't ask you to believe it, they ask you to check, to verify on it. The yogis believe, as I said, that there is a force in this universe that is called karma, which simply makes that every action is followed by an equal reaction sooner or later, sometimes much later, so you might feel, you might have the fake feeling that you got away with it. Basically you never get away with it, because sooner or later it is there. So basically the yogis say, if you live disastrously, for example, if you are a person who lives by torturing animals, let's just give an example, then how much harmony and how much karma do you think it will bring to you if you are a torturer of animals? Basically, it's obvious that sooner or later you will bite the dust and that you are going to get in trouble. So basically the yogis simply say so. The first reason for yama and niyama is to inform you about those things where you can get burned badly so that you stay away from them. Because life is short, the subject is vast, the, the modern world is so difficult for making spirituality. Basically the modern yogis, the yogis in the last centuries, they even claimed that we live in the human history and funny they claim that the human history is much older than we know it there have been cultures like Atlantida and others before our time that we don't know about and they claim that this is the darkest spiritual time that this planet has gone through in this cosmic cycle so basically they simply say that it, to be spiritual has never been more difficult than now not only because spirituality is looked upon as an oddity and you don't get any respect and support or anything at least if you were a yogi a thousand years ago in India people would bow down and touch your feet because you are a kind of holy man you are one of the few who is searching for God, holy man or woman and basically you would receive your food for free and at least you didn't have to care about this kind of things today if you do too much meditation your parents and your social advisor and whoever will say you are crazy, you should seek help maybe you should be committed in some institution or something so basically it's definitely not a favorable time for spirituality Uh, many of the spiritual ideas are considered to be very wrong 
very disturbed and whatever. Moreover, not only that you don't have support, not only that you are not encouraged, uh, also you are kind of not having any models around, like spiritual people are very rare. Today it is the world of Bill Gates and George W. Bush. This is the heroes of the day. That means that's kind of the model citizen of the day. And basically, uh, more than this, if you go even beyond this, also there is a lot of temptation. Try to think, a thousand years ago there was no printed press, there was no media, there was no radio, there was no television, there was no internet, there was no nothing. If you will go, for example, today in some God-forgotten village from the Amazon or from some place where all these things are not there, you will see that after a week, it's like you feel either that you are going crazy and you have to leave, because it's like you don't do anything the whole day. People don't do anything. They go to bed at 8 o'clock, they wake up with the sunrise, they do a lot of heavy physical work, they have a kind of simple culture where they talk with each other, they communicate, they have a family life, they have some simplicity, naturalness, but nothing is so you don't get a book to read, you don't get anything basically. So in this way, if you will ever try to have the experience of a so-called primitive community, you will see that people in the old days, they had plenty of time. There was nothing to waste time on. There was not all kinds of things to distract your attention from. You could stay quiet, and naturally after you'd stay a week quiet, you'll start thinking, hmm, maybe I should meditate, you know, because I've got plenty of hours every day where I'm doing nothing, you know, I'm just looking at the horizon. So basically the world a thousand years ago was much more meditative in many ways. It encouraged in so many ways. Today, if you don't do yoga, you go to a nightclub. If you don't do yoga, you go and watch a movie. If you don't do yoga, you go and stay on the internet. If you don't do yoga, you go and have a big meal. If you don't do yoga, I mean, there is always something else to be done. And your spiritual practice is always at competition with something else. So basically the yogis are saying, it's difficult enough as it is. This is, spiritually speaking, it's a very shitty time of history that we are into because there are no models, there is no encouragement, there is nothing. And there is so much temptation to do something else and you might discover too late that that something else was useless and empty and actually wasted your life. If you discover at the age of 70 that you wasted your life, it's a bit too late to do something about it. So basically, the yogis say it is difficult as it is. If you also do stupid things to make your karma heavy, you will never make it because the world is difficult as it is. To get out of this web of, uh, you know, what would you call it, this Fata Morgana, right? This uh, temptation of the things, this mirage of the things, then automatically, uh, if you have a difficult karma, things never seem to work. It's exactly like when you try to do something, the bus doesn't come, something is happening, there is always coincidences which go against you every time when you try to do something on this, it's like things don't fit, exactly in that moment there comes something. You sit down to do yoga, suddenly the telephone rings, your friends need you. As you try to do meditation, suddenly your mother is at the door, her cat has died, or you know, there's always something else to be done, it's like there is obstacles. You sometimes meet people, oh, they are very hot, they are very, you know, and you meet them after five years and ask them, well, oh, you are very hot on spiritual practice. What did you do in these five years? I mean, you should have reached somewhere already. Uh, They said, I never really had the time, you know, to do this thing. I always tried and 
This is exactly what, from the standpoint of yoga, would show a karma that doesn't let you do yoga. Of course, the karma cannot force you 100%. It can just make it very difficult, so you need to be dead stubborn, dead stubborn to do it. But else, the principle is there. That means there are forces in this universe, not human forces or entities, simply karmic forces, energies of nature, which if they are turned against you, they can make your life very difficult. You try to do some spirituality, everything goes wrong. You know, every time when you try, it seems that it goes wrong. It's not forever, it's an illusion, but still can make your life difficult. That is why the yogis say when you want to do spirituality, sometimes you want some peace. You would like to have a nice life, peaceful, in which you will not be ill, in which you will not be involved in conflict, in major accidents, in emotional turmoil. You would like to have a life which is pretty calm, so you have time to study, to read, to meditate, to look, because you say, okay, I'm young, I would like to dedicate five years of my young time to look a little bit in who I am and what I am, and not to do my spiritual duty. I feel it's right for me to look a little bit into this. The yogis say you will never get time if your karma is bad, basically, if your karma is adverse. That is why yama and niyama, first of all, is self-protection. The yogis say if you are going to travel a thousand miles, it's stupid to put nails in the soles of your shoes, because you cannot walk with nails in the soles of the shoes. It's stupid to do that. It's, it is difficult as it is. It's a big trip as it is. To make it more difficult, only a fool would make it more difficult. So it's exactly like you sit on a branch on a tree and you cut the branch under your own bottom. Then you'll fall with it. It's like undermining yourself, sabotaging yourself. That's why yama and niyama, first of all, is what to do not to create opposition from Mother Nature. To make things smooth ahead of you. To live a peaceful kind of existence. Not to make the waves on the ocean of your life too big because then navigation becomes almost impossible and you'll get confused and you'll not be able to keep a straight direction. The second thing is of course a matter of um, not only of uh, self-protection but it is also a matter of consistency like to being one. For example the yogis say it's impossible to say that on one hand you are searching for harmony for beauty and on the other hand you should be destructive. For example, you do yoga in the morning and you say, wow, I close my eyes and focus on the resonance, the harmonious resonance with nature and then, for example, in the evening you go and destroy nature or whatever. Then who are you? It's like you are schizophrenic. It's like you are two persons. You cannot do yoga only one hour per day. When you do yoga, basically that shows that you try to be a yogi. You try to be a harmonious person. So basically the yogis say, don't be split. When you decide, you search for a higher good, for a greater good, for a greater harmony, be consistent. Your behavior must reflect it, because else you are like two people in the same skin. The third reason is, of course, that the yogis are afraid of abuse. They say, we can teach to people the ping-pong ball thing and things like this, but what will they do with it? We are afraid that sometimes these people will take it and misuse it. That means there is a matter of responsibility. If you are distributing bombs and you are giving bombs to idiots, then you are equally responsible because you should have known better. Because you should know, you have the responsibility that you don't, don't put a bomb in the hand of a moron because the moron will misuse it. So basically, uh, it's your responsibility. So the great masters of yoga 
they thought they realized, wow, this yoga is dynamite, you know, if you put it in the hands of the wrong person, they may harm the world. So basically the yogis actually they have said you can never be too careful. Unlike what you learn in school, if you'll ever try to read books of alternative history, you'll discover that most things in this history, they are actually provoked by philosophical, ideological, spiritual types of conflicts, the good old fairy tale, good versus evil thing, and people who have actually used and abused occult forces. Starting with Alexander the Great of the Greeks and finishing with Napoleon Bonaparte, starting with Genghis Khan of the Mongols and finishing with Adolf Hitler, the history of this planet is just a long, long list of people who got to know something about occult forces of nature and shamelessly used them for power, ego, ambition, politics, manipulation. Perhaps you don't know this and many others, because when I learned history also, my teacher, being a Marxist teacher, taught me that history was because of economical and other reasons, that that's why we had revolutions and so on. Later on, when I read the motivations of Oliver Cromwell and Adolf Hitler and Napoleon Bonaparte and others, I discovered that actually these people were m moved, each one in their own way, by different forms of religious or sectant forms of fanaticism and actually their cause were spiritually that nothing to do with economical reasons, socio-economic market reasons or whatever. That's what people want to believe because it makes them sleep more quiet. So basically the thing is the yogi say you can never be too careful. That means these people have done it and other people have done it and theoretically we should say such people should have never laid hands on such knowledge to permit them to do so because they are egoistic, twisted, monstrous type of people and they should have been kept away from such information. But because they were ambitious, penetrating type of people, they got to it while other people were flabbily sleeping in their indifference. These people having a strong ego, or at least they were ambitious enough to get to such knowledge. And such knowledge became a bomb in their hands. In the old days, the yogis said, okay, a guru, a yoga teacher was living with his pupil 12 years. When you live with someone in the same house for 12 years or something like this, you get to know each other inside out. So the guru could evaluate if the teacher is, a, is the pupil, if the pupil is a moral person, if the pupil is a non-violent person, a mild person, an honest person, a clean person, a sincere person and so on. Today, these forms of teaching in which you live with the teacher for a long time so that as to absorb the knowledge are not practiced so much anymore because the Western world is a world of a different spirit altogether. And basically people come like you come, they come a month now, a month then, they want to learn something and so on. Basically, you cannot really check whoever comes, you know, to try to x-rays and to see what is this person what will they do with the knowledge that they get here and so on. So then it's just two chances, either not to give the knowledge, simply to keep it secret for a handful of chosen ones, or if you give the knowledge to people, the yogis say that the least you can do is at least to inform people, to tell them, look, you are learning this thing, but if you are going to use it for stealing, then you better wouldn't, because look what is happening if you practice theft and stealing. So in this way, I'm telling you this because, again, this is a very great reason. The yogis felt responsible, and they said at least, I mean, you can never know what people will do, because they have their free will, or at least they think so, up to a level. But at least 
you can inform them. At least people should know, look, this is the situation and you should know if you do this or not. Now, enough with this introduction tonight. Not only that you have this introduction in Yama and Niyama, but you have as exemplification the very first of the Yamas of Yoga, which is at the same time a very characteristic one, a very classical one, and which is very controversial, which is rising a lot of difficulties, and which is rising a lot of problems. Many people would ask why Yama and Niyama, if they are all together the same salad, why are they split in two, Yama and Niyama? Actually, this is a conceptual thing, it's a semantic thing. Yama are things which are expressed negatively, so they are don'ts, no, no. And Niyamas are things which are no negation, they are injunctions, they are advice, so they are do's, they are simply uh, positive things. Also, when you study them, you will see that yamas are things which refer to what I do to the others, what I do to the world, the relationship of the individual with the world, and that can be called the moral level, and niyama is what I do to myself, what I do when I am alone with myself, and that could be called as well the ethical level of it. Anyhow, for a reason or another, they have been divided in two subgroups. First, yama. Yama contains in it five Yamas, there are five such rules, let's say them, they are not rules, you will not be obliged, I cannot check if you observe these rules, and I will never tell you you should go out of the yoga course because you are not observing the first of the Yamas or whatever, that's your choice after all, so there are not rules in this way, like you can't do yoga without them, but generally you will see that all the yogis of history and all the spiritual beings of history, somehow they harmoniously fit all of them into these categories. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.